This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest who joined me via Skype is Andrew Sean Greer. He is the author of six novels, including The Confessions of Max Tivoli, The Story of a Marriage, and The Impossible Lives of Greta Wells. His most recent book, Less, tells the story of Arthur Less, a failed novelist about to turn 50, whose ex-lover is about to be married. In an attempt to avoid the wedding, Les begins a trip around the world on various literary junkets, residencies, and award ceremonies, but finds he is never far from his heartbreak and his unending quest for love. While Andrew Sean Greer says he wrote the book with a keen interest in aging and turning 50 himself, he notes that all his books end up being about love, so we started discussing that. What could be more important? I don't think I'm the only one. Um, I think it is the the most incredible experience human beings get to have. And it is bizarre because it's not really part of daily life. It's this other thing. And I find it just fascinating. I'm, and everyone's willing to talk about it. You know, if you just sit in a bar after a cocktail or two, you can ask anybody, um, a love story and you'll get one. But you can't ask anyone a political story, they get worked up. But because the love story is just about them, if you listen honestly, they'll tell you. Well, I, I think one of the things that's so interesting, and it's definitely interesting for less on, on several levels, but that that you can want love and you can ask for love and you can wish for love, but it doesn't mean you're going to get love. You know, with less, I felt like he was very consumed with this idea of getting love, but there's no guarantees. Well, and then also, what do you mean by love? That's the other question that at least this, this friend of him asked him, like, do you mean a lightning strike that burns you to the ground that you ne- that causes you incredible passion and pain and you never forget? Or do you mean a, a dear good thing that supports you over the decades? What are you talking about? And do you think Les knows? Absolutely not. No. Who is Arthur Les? Like if you had to describe him to our listeners, who do you think he is? A hapless, innocent, really. I think that's his flaw. And I hope what's charming about him for readers is that he puts himself in situations that any other person would either know was a bad idea or would be prepared for. And instead he goes in thinking everything's going to go fine and He's setting himself up for disappointment and he and he gets disappointed easily. And yet he goes on to the next thing, hoping certain it's going to be better. One of the things that I found really interesting was it felt like in the places where the book went a little bit more interior into his head or just got a little closer to him. I felt like he was more sort of hapless and maybe how he looked at himself was not as confidently as the rest of the world. I felt like there was a disconnect between how he looked at himself and how other characters looked at him. Well, I think that's certainly true because I think most of the time he gets introspective is when he's like, like, why are people so interested in me? Why are people asking me questions like this? He starts to get sort of suspicious because he doesn't see himself as worth talking about. Like when he gets cornered in France by that fellow writer who says terrible things to him. He just thinks, well, why is this occurring to this person to say this to me? 
Like why, what God has enough spare time for this particular humiliation for nobody? I, I hope, that's what I hope comes across is like, because I think he's probably not a bad writer. And I think he's probably charming and smart and, you know, much better than he thinks he is. And I think that's that's important for a reader because you wouldn't have that tension as much if he didn't have his own self-doubts while the rest of the world is seeing him differently. So I'm just wondering, is in the craft part of creating this character, if you were conscious of that tension? I had to help with that because the I have a basically third-person narrative, but it's a, it's a first person we know who's telling it. And I think that helps because when you have a little bit of a first person narrator, you can tell that they have an opinion about the character, that it's not God speaking, it's a person. And you can tell, I hope, that this person is fond of Arthur Les, even as he's making fun of him. And I think it wouldn't be funny if it was just tearing someone down without, it's more a gentle ribbing because our narrator is fond of him. And I think that's that helped me. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Andrew Sean Greer, author of the novel Less. Did you did you start out in the first draft with a narrator? First draft is hard on this one because I was writing a totally different book for a long time, maybe a year, which I scrapped and started over again as a comedy about the same character traveling around the world. So when I started over, I had everything I needed. I wrote the chapter on Italy, which is the third chapter, and it is in the book exactly as I wrote it. Um, I had suddenly I got everything I needed at once when I figured out the book. But before that, I had all kinds of different things going on. Yeah, you don't read that many books with a first person narrator who's kind of outside of the story. And we don't really know who the narrator is until the end but who kind of has this all-knowingness and also self-consciousness. And um, it was an interesting craft choice. Well, I think actually we see it more than we realize. I, a lot of writers have used this as their way in. Joseph Conrad did that in most of his books. You don't realize Heart of Darkness is being told first person by someone who's listening to it being told on a dock or something. Um, or Philip Roth, all of his Zuckerman books. We don't realize American Pastoral is actually narrated by Zuckerman, or in Human Stain is as well. And um, Penin by Nabokov is done that way. And then my book imitates Penin a lot. So I think there's a sort of, you don't realize, you forget it's the first person. I think a lot of writers, it's a nice way into the story to start out in first person because it feels more modern than an omniscient narrator of, of, of George Eliot um, and a little more intimate and a way for the writer to get into the book. This book is really Les's travels around the world. His um, ex-lover is about to get married. He doesn't want to go to the wedding. So he plans like all these junkets and writing things around the world. And he goes to all these different places, France, Italy, Morocco, India. And in each place, he kind of has a different experience. And one of the things um, mixed in with that is is memories of his backstory and memories of his time with his ex-lover. 
and I'm and and you wove sort of the the past and the present so tightly and oh thanks I know that you're interested in time because I've read some of your other work but I'm just I'm wondering about your your interest in time and if you see it as something that's kind of more linear in people's lives or you know what is your interest in it yeah, I would say that's my other interest. And again, like love, I'm obsessed with it, but have no no intelligence to share with you about it. I'm the son of two scientists, so of course, I believe we experience it linearly, but that that's not how it actually exists. And so my favorite books, you know, my favorite book is Proust, where you wouldn't say it's linear, although I guess it's a chronological book in, in literally. You know, my friend Mary Park told me 25 years ago that when you you should grind your coffee beans for a certain amount of time. And so Mary Park says that in my ear every morning from 30 years, 25 years ago. So I guess you could say time's linear. And yet she shows up. I don't think about her like she literally says it in my ear. And I think that's a weird experience. Well, one of the things I thought, you know, where everything got the most sort of juicy is when you sort of mix love's relationship to time. And an example of this, I mean, is Arthur's having a conversation with his friend, Lewis, of Lewis and Clark. That's his relationship. And when Lewis yeah. got into the relationship, Clark says, I'm here for 10 years. And he was like, that's crazy, but he did it. And then they sort of re-upped for another 10 years, and then it was over. And that is so untraditional in terms of how we think about love in, in this culture. And I'm just wondering if you could talk about that. Of course, it, it's bizarre to me, too. That's why I put it in, because I thought it was a really funny thing to do. But I met a couple where that was they had met that made that agreement. Um, and I thought that that is bizarre. Why would you set a kind of timer like that? Um, but they both thought it was a really advanced way to do things. So, you know, in that chapter, I'm, I'm, I'm making fun of that couple a little bit for being so maybe clinical about it or something. But I also think they have a, a point, which is not to expect everything always forever. That that's like, couldn't you just want 10 years of love? Isn't that enough to want from someone else? I don't think Les can, can get down with that either. No, he totally can't. Because he's a romantic. It's an unromantic thing to say. And um, I don't think it would be super charming to meet someone on those terms. And just, But maybe it would be relaxing. You don't have to think about it at all. They're sticking around for 10 years. They're not you know, going to be out the door when you, they're not going to go out for cigarettes and never come back in 10 years. But how freaked out would you be for that conversation? <laughs> I just found this book that all of the, the issues about love happen in conversations. They don't happen in his head or in, in the exposition. And I thought he had the most interesting conversations about love in Morocco. I mean, one of them was with Zora, and this was this woman who you were saying earlier, it's like, is love white hot or is love having dinner together on Tuesday? Oh, I think that about that chapter, too. I really like it because he has two big conversations in that one and little else, you know. But I, now you say that to me, and I just think, like, well, okay, why did I do that? Usually you do the opposite in like a short story, the conversations are about um, how the hills are like white elephants and there's something else secret going on underneath. But maybe because it's a comedy, you get to have everything out in the open. You don't need to store up tension. What you're trying to do is release it. 
So this time I got to have the kind of conversations that normally in a novel you only get to do once, right at the climax, and then in the end you probably cut that because you did too much. I got to have all the time. It was great fun to have, especially it's near the end he gets to talk via Skype with his old lover. And that was the, the best part for me to write. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Andrew Sean Greer, author of the novel, Less. Less is working on his new novel, and one of the things someone told him, which it wasn't bought by his publisher, they weren't interested in it, and he told someone about it, and it was like basically about this white gay man walking around San Francisco and and the person he was talking to was like, that's just, you know, another privileged white man story. And and Les was like, but he's gay. And he's like, it's still not enough. And then I was thinking about your book, which is about this white gay man going around the world. And obviously it's kind of meta. But I'm wondering um, about the inclusion of, of this. I was aware that I was writing a book about a middle-aged white man um, going to other countries. And so I needed to make sure that I didn't write something that made fun of the other countries, for instance, because here's a person of great privilege. And the fun of the book is to strip away his privilege um, and return it to him, you know, um, reward him at various points. So I made a rule for myself. The joke always had to be on Arthur Less because he's the thing that's out of place. Everyone in these countries is, is doing perfectly fine and doing all the right things. And he's the one that's wrong. Um, and that's what's funny. Um, and so I made that rule for myself because I thought very carefully, like, you know, who wants to read a book about a middle-aged white man? There's so many of those. Um, and they're hard to feel sorry for, you know, unless you sort of poke a little fun at them like I did. Well, he also, I mean, another thing, another maybe not <laughs> in his cap is that he's a bad gay. It's not that he's a bad writer. He's a bad gay. Yeah. <laughs> he gets told that at a, at a party by a fellow writer that um, it's not that he's a bad writer. It's that he's a bad gay, which is just comes on an undefended flank. He has no idea how to respond to that. You know, that that's something you're supposed to be naturally good at because there's no way to be bad at it is there, but apparently there is. Again, he's an innocent. He's not expecting these attacks and he's already deeply insecure. So it just, it's one that's almost calculated to send him into a tailspin. On his journey, he, he is consumed with turning 50. He turns 50 on his trip in Morocco and he's kind of relieved after that happens and he keeps going. And I'm wondering if you think less in this course of this book, grew older or younger? That is a very good question. It's tough because I'm tempted to say younger because at the end of the book, he ends it with like a renewed hope and innocence that you just think, well, how could you possibly keep going on? And yet that's what he's made of. So, um, but I also like to think that he made a transition into becoming a, a real adult, not a young youngish, youngy person, but grown up, someone who accepts his life and himself as it is, as he is, and is able to go on. I'd like to think that's it. But with, I mean, he can't get rid and stop being boyish. I think that'll stay with him. 
he was told by someone that you kind of spend half your life as comedy and half your life as tragedy. I, I'm just curious about where you came up with this idea. That was one of the first things I wrote. It's funny how novels go around. I forgot. That was one of the very first things. Um, I just, how it came into my head, I don't know. Well, maybe 50 is a nice way to split things in two. Um, and since I was writing a, a comedy, um, I thought, oh, what about this idea? Well, I think it's a, it's a phony idea, but it's the kind of thing that his nemesis might say to him to kind of mess with his head. I hope no one leaves this and, and, and puts that on like a 50th birthday card because of course life is necessarily messier and, and more unpredictable than that. And then the character does eventually say like, I, I thought the second life of your life was going to be tragedy, but it, it's still comedy. I'm wrong. Can you read something that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? I would love to read from uh, Vladimir Nabokov's Panin, the very beginning. Chapter one, the elderly passenger sitting on the north window side of that inexorably moving railway coach next to an empty seat and facing two empty ones was none other than Professor Timothy Panin. Ideally bald, suntanned and clean shaven, he began rather impressively with that great brown dome of his tortoiseshell glasses, masking an infantile absence of eyebrows, apish upper lip, thick neck, and strong man torso in a tightish tweed coat, but ended somewhat disappointingly in a pair of spindly legs, now flanneled and crossed, and frail-looking, almost feminine feet. His sloppy socks were of scarlet wool with lilac lozenges. His conservative black oxford had cost him about as much as all the rest of his clothing flamboyant goon tie included. Prior to the 1940s, during the staid European era of his life, he had always long, worn long underwear, its terminals tucked into the tops of his neat silk socks, which were clocked, soberly colored, and held up on his cotton-clad calves by garters. Tell me a little bit about this and why you chose it. It is such a marvelous introduction to a character. The first paragraph is entirely physical, and even though he's the he's the object of ridicule by our narrator, it's actually um, there's it's mixed admiration and ridicule. You know, he's got a strong man torso. He's ideally bald, but it ends disappointingly in frail little feminine feet. And then the second paragraph starts with talking about his socks, but then and then his underwear. But then you get his entire history um, in the paragraph about. Um, being without his collar, and then it loops all the way back to the train car, which only has two passengers except for Panin himself. So you're back in the physical world again, but you've gotten exactly what the character looks like, what we think of him, and his whole history of um, where he's been, where he came from, where he's been, and why he's here. So we're ready to meet him. Two paragraphs in. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Andrew Sean Greer, author of the novel, Less. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it's something that you like or something that changed a lot, or I understand maybe the beginning that was really influenced by this novel. Yeah, I'm going to read the beginning, which actually is always the hardest for me to write. I always write it last, which... I, I actually wrote the, the ending last of all things, but I'm not reading you the ending. Um, that would give it all away. So I'll read the beginning, and I think it's interesting to look at the similarities. From where I sit, the story of Arthur Less is not so bad. Look at him. 
seated primly on the hotel lobby's plush round sofa, blue suit and white shirt, legs knee crossed so that one polished loafer hangs free of its heel, the pose of a young man. His slim shadow is in fact still that of his younger self, but at nearly 50, he's like those bronze statues in public parks that despite one lucky knee rubbed raw by school children, discolor beautifully until they match the trees. So has Arthur Less, once pink and gold with youth, faded like the sofa he sits on, tapping one finger on his knee and staring at the grandfather clock. The long patrician nose perennially burned by the sun, even in cloudy New York October. The washed out blonde hair too long on the top, too short on the sides, portrait of his grandfather. Those same watery blue eyes. Listen. You might hear anxiety ticking, ticking, ticking away as he stares at that clock, which unfortunately is not ticking itself. It stopped 15 years ago. Arthur Less is not aware of this. He still believes that it is ripe age that escorts for literary events arrive on time and bellboys reliably wind the lobby clocks. He wears no watch. His faith is fast. It is mere coincidence that the clock stopped at half past six almost exactly the hour when he used to be taken to tonight's event. The poor man does not know it, but the time is already quarter to seven. As he waits, around and around the room circles a young woman in a brown wool dress, a species of tweed hummingbird pollinating first this group of tourists and then that one. She dips her face into a cluster of chairs asking a particular question and then, dissatisfied, the answer darts away to find another. Les does not notice her as he, she makes her rounds. He's too focused on the broken clock. The young woman goes up to the lobby clerk, then to the elevator, startling a group of ladies overdressed for the theater. Up and down Les's loose shoe goes. If he paid attention, perhaps he would have heard the woman's eager question, which explains why, though she asks everyone else in the lobby, she never asks it of him. Excuse me, but are you Miss Arthur Les? The problem, which will not be solved in this lobby, is that the escort believes Arthur Les to be a woman. So tell me a little bit about that. The hard part of beginning a novel, as every writer knows, is there's so much information to impart, while at the same time you're trying to charm the reader into the book itself, and those are at odds with each other. One, it's like someone who wants something from you while they're telling you a story, you don't really trust them, so you have to sneak in things. Um, like I sneak in that he's nearly 50. I say it's burnt, his nose is burned by the sun, even in cloudy New York, October. So you've got a time of year and a place. Um, and after I've done, and that he's at a literary event, once I've done all that, then I can relax <laughs> and get him into what I think is a funny situation. I want him to be, um, create a tension, which is that he's supposed to be somewhere and he has innocent faith in the grandfather clock that stopped 15 years ago and that the person looking for him thinks he's a woman and you think disaster. Where do you write? Well, I travel a lot, so it changes. Um, and I've had to learn to be more flexible than I used to be. When I'm in San Francisco, most mornings I go swimming with my best friend who's also a writer. We talk about writing and then we either go to a cafe and write side by side with our headphones on, or we head to our homes and write in our offices. My favorite place is to write is my office, but I can't always do that. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I travel, <laughs> which is why I had so much data for this book. Or exercise is the best way 
to write in the back of your head while you're not thinking about it. Swimming is my best way to think um, because it's there's there's nothing you can just be without thinking for a long, long time. And then when you get back on shore, you come up with some idea that you had to not be hard won. And after that comes running. But things like going to the gym does not help the writing. Mostly I just worry. So who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I show it to my friend Daniel, who has helped me with my last three novels and to whom this novel is dedicated because he's a really he's not an editor. He gives solid advice and very honest advice. My last book, after he read a draft of it, he met me at Zamzam Bar in the Hate here in San Francisco and he had a gimlet waiting for me and I sat down and he said, Andrew, it is an honor to watch you struggle with a work of art. And then he gave me the notes, but he's always honest, which I need. How have you dealt with rejection? Terribly. <laughs> uh, a lot of people that you would think at my age that it would roll off my back, but um, I take it very hard. I still do. I take it personally. And what I should know by my age is that there are things going on in publishers minds and in publishing itself that have nothing to do with us as authors um, and that we should just make the best work we can and that it will find a place. But I wish I should tell that to myself. And what is your favorite word? Oh, my favorite word is one I used in the Confessions of Max Tivoli, chivalry. I was so proud of getting to use that word. And it's sort of an old colonial celebration where they would bang pots and pans outside of your window and make you come outside and dance. The whole thing is so charming to me. And the word contains every that feeling of celebration and sort of old fashionedness that I like about the English language. Shivery, shivery. Let's have a shivery. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest who joined me via Skype was Andrew Sean Greer, author of the novel Less. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing and click like and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.